Karen and I have been fantasizing over the past few years of going somewhere exotic for Christmas. Kind of our own version of Christmas with the cranks, you know. <laughs> you hear about people who go to Belize or Aruba or somewhere for Christmas, and it, that seems so alluring, so decadent, doesn't it? it? It just seems so wonderfully irresponsible. But, you know, being the good Midwesterner Americans that we are, we know that it is part of our lot in life to stay home and suffer together with all of you <laughs> through the season of Christmas. We don't deserve such a thing as that, but we'll wait here and see what weather brings, what spitty little rain will fall on my bald head. I'd like to take you on a very cool Christmas vacation this year. You in? It's a journey. It's a journey that millions upon millions of believers have made this time of year through the centuries. We'll be joining in a heritage of faith of people who have met in every country, every language, every nation, every people. Has taken this journey in some form or another. It's predating by far the uh, commercialism that Christmas has become for us. And it's a journey that will deliver you into the presence of Jesus. In journey with four steps: hope, prepare, receive, and rejoice. It's a journey called Advent, a word that means coming. Because as we eagerly await a second coming, we also passionately celebrate his first coming. We do eagerly await the physical manifestation of Jesus coming for his church, for his bride. But we also fully enjoy and embrace his present reality of Jesus Christ who came and who lives among us in the power of his Holy Spirit. The whole journey starts with something called hope. Hope. The journey is based on a prophecy by Isaiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy, I think, was meant to do two primary things. First, to warn, if you've been reading your Bible thing, you get into some of those prophets, major and minor, and they can be pretty alarming in spots, yes? Isaiah said, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Your worship is but rules made up by men. That's alarming. So there's a lot of warning in the prophets. But I think the other purpose, the other side of the coin, was to give hope that God is still interested and in integrally involved in the lives of his people, those who bear his name. And the prophecy is meant to say, I, I love you. I'm here to rescue you. This is why I'm warning you. And if you heed my warning, there's hope. So if you want to take this amazing Advent journey with us and have maybe a kind of Christmas you've never had before, then you must begin by daring to hope. Just daring to hope. To allow yourself to hope for the possibility that in this season you could have the most dynamic encounter with the living God that you have ever had. 
to allow yourself to hope, to have the confident assurance that as you move through this season, you don't have to be distracted by the things that the world has made it, but that in the midst of everything that's going to happen over these next few weeks, that you can find a slice, you can find a crack in the armor of the world where God can come seeping in and touch you and show himself to you in maybe ways that you never have before. And it starts by daring to hope that. Don't take my word for it. Please, always, always take God's word for it. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. For you guys who are new, that's almost close to the middle. Look at that. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7, actually. And prepare to... Why don't you give like a, 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 an expression of surprise when I say, let's begin with the context. Could you work on the expression of surprise? That sounded like a gasp. So are you ready? Let's begin with the context. There's a little bit of it like, what? <laughs> if you're new here, that's where I tend to start unpacking the Bible because I think it's important. And the time of this passage that I'm about to read for you is around 700 B.C., long time ago, 2,700 years ago. For centuries, Egypt to the south had been the big dog in the world, I mean for centuries. And uh, you'll, of course, recall how Moses had led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. It would have been about 600 years prior to this time. But Egypt was still, in very every sense, a major power in the world. And uh, Egypt was to the south of where Israel had settled in Palestine. Now, during that time, there was a people to the north called the Assyrians... And they were uh, gaining strength and beginning to exert their military muscles and expand their territory. And Israel was geographically caught in the crossfire between these two kingdoms. What Egypt considered to be its own and where Assyria said, no, that's now going to be ours. And Jerusalem had become a kind of eye of the storm in the front lines of battle between the expansion of these two empires. And the importance of taking time to know this is because what I plan to show you in this passage, I want to show you how it contains elements of message for both the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Why does that matter, you ask? Because of this. Because one of the critical steps in interpreting the Bible accurately is troubling ourselves to discover what the passage originally meant before we begin to pray our way to an understanding of what it now means. That's context. So that's why it matters that we think about Assyria and Egypt and that there might be elements of in this very passage that had to do with them. And as then as we put ourselves in that place, we are ready to invite the Holy Spirit to come and tell us how much of that translates over 2,700 years to Grove City, Ohio and what it has to do with us. So with that in mind, let's start, the, let's start unpacking it. You ready? Say yes. Verse 1, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that's one of those words, isn't it? You can't just blow by a word like nevertheless. It's one of those connecting words like therefore, exactly, Uh, however, It's one of those connecting words that says, you know, what was just said is as important as what is about to be said. 
and it connects them together. And that a person would be just shy of crazy foolish to read on without going back and say, what is the nevertheless about? So if you have any hope of truly understanding what this word means, understanding what is about to be said, you've got to pay careful attention to what was just said. You husbands know what I'm talking about. Come on, guys. You know what I'm talking about? Found yourself in a conversation with your wife and you suddenly realize that you forgot to keep listening? And she's saying things to you now. The words are landing, but you don't know what they're connected to. And you try to fake it. Raise your hand. Go ahead, guys. Yeah, there we go. The rest of you are liars. You don't mean to do that. We don't mean to do that, ladies. We really don't. We're just wired that way. And your mouths are moving and words are coming out and we're thinking about football and stuff and it's just what happens. It's, it's just a liability. And so you're, you try to re-enter the conversation without knowing what was just said, probably to your peril. It's best to stay out of that water altogether, isn't it? Oh, hey, you know, i got to go. We'll get back to this. Well, here he says, nevertheless, you don't go forward without first going backwards. Israel and Judah were still in another time, still another time of turning away from God. Let me give you a couple examples right back in chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with, this, with his strong hand upon me, catch this, warning me not to follow the way of this people. So the people of Israel, people of Judah actually were not in a good place. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Now remember, little Israel is caught in the crossfire between two major empires. They are literally the geographical front line in this battle. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary But for both houses of Israel, that means Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. So he's saying, you know, the people of Israel, the the nation of Israel, they had taken their eyes off of God during this peril, during this attack. They listened to conspiracy, and then this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen. And last week I said, Jesus is coming soon. Be alarmed, but don't be afraid. Why don't you be afraid? Because if you keep your eyes on Jesus, there's nothing to fear. And he says that this is exactly what the Israelites were not doing. Skip down to verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? This is, the, this is where they were. To the law and to the testimony... If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Hey, we're going to get to a light passage in a minute. That matters, doesn't it? Look, he says, distressed and hungry, they will roam all through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, nevertheless, 
This is the important setup of the, of the literal promise. Nevertheless, I love the nevertheless of God, don't you? I am a sinner. My sin has found me out. The wages of sin is death. I should be dead. Nevertheless, by the grace of God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, I am born again. I am saved by His blood. I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. I love the nevertheless of God, don't you? So he's saying, all this is bad, all this is bad, all this is bad. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Wow, this is a big setup, isn't it? No more. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, principally those were, those were ransacked in the expansion of Assyria. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Hmm. That's an odd place for something good to happen. And then verse 2. The people walking in darkness, before the nevertheless, have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I love the mixed verb tenses here, don't you? Look. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now this was spoken 700 years before the light came. But the call of the prophet is to live in the fulfillment of God's promise. Live, Christian, listen, live in the fulfillment of God's promise. So many Christians seem to spend their life begging God to complete his promise. When Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. He said, live in the fulfillment of it. Now before you go out and order your new Mercedes Benz, Context, context, context. Read the next verse after that. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about forgiveness. In fact, he says, and if you have something against your brother, go be reconciled. And so he's talking about forgiveness. So whatever you ask for in prayer, Dennis, no matter how heinous it is, believe that you have received the forgiveness of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and it'll be yours. And you're a good example of a man who lives in the present reality of a promised future. That's what it means to be a Christian, to embrace the things God has already given us and live as though we have them. Live as though the promises are fulfilled. And you know, when you do that, that's when you'll see the kingdom break out. Don't spend the rest of your life begging God to show you some some hem of his garment. You live as though you're walking with your hand in his hand. You'll see the kingdom break out. Okay, on we go. Verse 3 and 4. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. What's all this? Well, there were two particular times that the Israelites rejoiced. Harvest, it's a good thing. Not a lot of refrigeration. Harvest time was a great time. And in victory, in military victory. Why? Because they got all their stuff. I mean, not only were the enemies eradicated, they got all their stuff. It's called plunder. And so there were two times, you know, two principal times when Israel really rejoiced. It was harvest and in the victory. Now, what's this reference to as in the day of Midian's defeat? Well, Midian, the Midianites, you remember, were those heinous people who came against the people of God in Judges 6 through 8 when, when that little Gideon rose up. Gideon, who was called by God. And the angel said, oh, mighty man of God. And he goes, are you talking to me? 
And Gideon said, I'm just a little small. I'm the, I'm the smallest man in the smallest clan, and you're talking to me? And he goes, yeah, mighty man of God. And he used Gideon to bring the Israelites out of their caves. They were living in fear because the Midianites would come and they would raid their crops. And he used Gideon to conquer them. And what's he saying? As in the day of Midian's defeat. Now, what does this have to do with them? Here they are. They're little Israel. Assyria, Egypt. We don't have a chance. But he said, as in the day of Midian's defeat, just as God raised Gideon to defeat the Midianites, this promise is for you. Verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. What's that? Every warrior's boot used in battle is likely a reference to the Assyrians because many, many, many soldiers went barefoot back then. I know. Now, the Assyrians were uniquely known for having these very cool sandals, the, 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 the military men, and they laced all the way up to the knees, kind of the pre-Roman thing, you know? But their officers were issued boots. And so he's talking about the Assyrians here, and he says, every boot, every boot, catch this, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood. What's that? Well, the Assyrians had a pantheon of deities of idols and they had a certain several who were committed to war and they had a goddess of war whose name i'm not going to say because i just don't like to give the devil credit but who had they they believed in this goddess of war who at the time of victory would come and plunge her skirts into the blood of the dead and this was their thought And so now this makes a different kind of sense. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now this would have meant a lot to the Israelites. All those Assyrians with their boots and their belief in this goddess. And God's saying, that's that's what I'm going to make my fire out of. I'm going to warm my hands over them. And it goes on. Then he takes a shot at the Egyptians. As you move south here in the next verse, or in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the, this is the core of the promise here, is that God is going to send one. A child is born, a son is given, who will be called these things. And, and this is part of the core of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that Israel set their hope on for centuries. And this is one of those prophecies that was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus that we now put our hope on and have for 2,000 years as believers in Christ, as Christians. It's an amazing description of God here. It's a self-disclosure. God's saying, here, here's who I am. I'm wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And Prince of Peace. What does it have to do with Egypt? Ask me. Here's what it has to do with Egypt. Whenever a pharaoh ascended to the throne, succeeded the pharaoh before him, he was given a five-fold title. He was given a five-fold name that was meant to be characteristic of who he was going to be, the nature of his reign. And it was kind of a big thing. It was a big announcement. Because pharaohs were thought to be a form of deity themselves. And so the prophet is inspired to say, oh, God is going to send a son, and he will be called, he gave him a five-fold name. You say, no, he gave him a four-fold name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Except, there were no commas in Hebrew. 
What? There are no commas in Hebrew. There are no commas in Koine Greek. All these commas and, and you know, punctuation marks, we've necessarily added because of how we do language. And the Hebrews had different ways of making known their point. And I think, uh, I think this is a poor rendering in our Bible where it says wonderful counselor. I think the better rendering would be, and he will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And this is the fivefold name of Jesus. You could do it in different places. You could say he could call a wonderful counselor, mighty, God, you know, I guess in some sense your guess is as good as mine. But the reality is, I believe it, it just makes complete sense that the prophet was giving a fivefold name to the coming Jesus. So the point of verse 4 and 5, coupled now with verse 6, is that no matter who these Assyrians are, no matter who these Egyptians are, no matter how small you are, Israel, God is coming and is going to conquer them all. The one true living God is going to rise up over them all. Does that make sense? Verse 7. Say yes, or I'll begin again. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. I love this. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He's saying that the promise that is being offered here is not a temporary political solution for the dilemma in which they found themselves but is an eternal answer to the human condition. And even connects it to the Gentiles way back in verse 1, when he says God's going to raise up some of the future. He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. And he's even giving a glimpse, which probably made the Israelites skin crawl, that the blessing of God was going to come to us too. Right? But he said, this is something in our passage. This is something God is going to do. I love this phrase, don't you? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord. Now, I mean, just the regular Lord is pretty cool. <laughs> can, you, can you just envision, allow yourself to envision the zealous Lord? The zealous Lord who says, I love my people. They are sandwiched in danger. I'm going to come and rescue them. They are caught in a conflict. I'm going to come and rescue them. And this is the picture of Jesus Christ for us, beloved. We are caught in a cosmic battle. And he's come to rescue us through the sacrifice and resurrection of his own son. Well, at the core of this 2,700-year-old prophecy, I think lives two abiding realities, and that's hope, and faith. You listen to this prophecy, it's hope and faith. Now let's establish something real quickly. The word hope has all but lost its meaning in English. Well, I hope so. I hope I get a Betsy Wetsy for Christmas. Hope in English now means like wish, doesn't it? I wish. It's not what it meant. It's not what it's intended to mean. Hope means the confident assurance that the thing is true. When I say I have hope in my marriage, it doesn't mean, I wish Karen would come home at night. It means I know she's coming home at night. You hear me? 
wish. Hope does not equal wish. Hope is that indwelling confidence that the thing that you are believing is true. I get to this place in evangelism frequently when I'm sharing Christ with an unbeliever and they're saying, but, 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 but. And I go, I don't think I'm ever going to be smart enough to answer all of your questions. They seem like good questions. But this much I know. This heart's going to make its last beat one day. And this man is going to wake up in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. That's not a wish. That's hope. You hear me? And at the core of this first prophecy in Advent is hope. Is leaning into it. How do you get that kind of hope, you ask? Go ahead. Hope always proceeds from faith. Hope always proceeds from faith. Say, how do you get there? Have faith. Release your faith. Release your faith. You know this. The journey begins by leaning forward into hope. How do I get that? By releasing your faith. Now listen, if you're a Christian... You have all the faith you need for everything. You already got it. Ephesians says that faith is a gift from God. The disciples were going, increase our faith. Jesus said, well, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. You, you, We have all the faith we need. So don't be praying for more faith. If you don't have hope, If you don't have that confident assurance, don't pray for faith. Pray that the release of faith will happen. Pray that God will show you the obstacles to the release of your faith. And then release your faith. Release your faith in what you cannot see, and hope will emerge. Isn't faith the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen? There we go. Release into that thing that you cannot see, Make a decision to exercise your faith, and the hope will come in. So when you get on the airplane to go to Belize, you hope it will take you to Belize, do you not? With some level of confidence, says right here on the ticket. Yep, Belize, how about that? Seat 17D. And you somehow... You release your faith into so many things that you can't see. So many things that you can't see. You release your faith into that airplane, the function of that airplane, into a pilot you can't see. I mean, once they close the door, for all you know, they climb out the window before you leave, right? You, you release your, but you release your faith. No, they're in there. I'm sure of it. We're still up. You've released your faith. Air traffic controllers. Think of the hundreds of people in which you have released your faith when you sit in that plane, and yet you have confidence, confident assurance that in a few hours you're going to be in sunny, warm climate. That sounds good right now, doesn't it? And it's a release of your faith into what you cannot see, and then the hope comes, the confidence comes. This is the call of God on our lives, is to release our faith in the thing we cannot see, We cannot see Jesus, (laughs) but to release our faith into what he has said, and then the confidence comes.
And the truth is, is that we are caught in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. And we're looking two ways all the time. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And our sight, we're caught in this cosmic struggle that the devil's over here all the time saying, yeah, but look at, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. And you see what I got to put on you if I want to? And, and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And we just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And God says, don't look over there. Just look over here. Walk by faith. Put your faith in the things that I have said. Put your faith. What a luxury we have of being the church now after 2,000 years, not only of the Word of God, which of course is primary, but in the history, the legacy of faith that we have seen God work among us here, but among Christians for thousands of years, 2,000 years now. So our, our faith is a lot more sighted than it used to be. I mean, up until 500 years ago, they didn't even have one of these. Three-quarters of the history of the church, they did not have one of these that they could carry. Now we have them in every flavor, don't we? Put your faith, release your faith. It's called to make a decision to place your faith in God. And then the hope will come. You want to take this journey? Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. He said it. What's soon to him? Explained that last week. It means be ready. Could be the second. You might not even get wet on the way out to your car today. It means be ready. So what are you going to do? I'll, you know, if we make it through Advent, I want to take you on this journey. It starts with hope. Will you spend the week in hope? Will you spend the week looking for your hope, daring to hope that, this, that something could happen for you? That you could expect something to occur? That maybe all this isn't just talk? Maybe there really is a living God who wants to come and interface your life and come and invade your Christmas presence with his Christmas presence. Just invite him to come. Release your faith. So, Lord, it's a good day. It's a good day to breathe before you. What a nice breath of fresh air you've given us today, Lord. Just to know that Jesus has done all the work for us. We can't help with salvation, can we? So freely we place our faith. Confidently we place our faith in the knowledge of what Jesus Christ has come to do for us. And Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that as we move through this season of Advent, and I know that it's our idea to call it Advent, not yours, Lord, but it doesn't seem like you mind. And so um, as we move through this season of Advent, Lord, I just pray that you will cause us to find you. No matter how many times we've found you before or in what ways we have found you before, you are new. You make all things new. Your mercies are new every morning, and so show us something new. You are infinite. Surely we don't think we have seen everything there is to see about you. And so, Lord, whether we're brand new to the faith or have been walking it out for decades, we invite you to come. And reveal yourself to us. I thank you, Father, for these people here today. And I know that among them, there must be people who need prayer, who need help. There must be people among us today that don't know what to do next. They're afraid of maybe something a doctor has said or 
something they're afraid to even go and see about. And they're afraid about something in their relationships, their marriage, or their future, or their job. And I believe this pool of living water is for all of us to enjoy. And so, Father, I pray that in these few minutes that we have together here now, that your Holy Spirit will pour himself out on us. I pray that you will just enliven those who will be praying for others and anoint them to bring the power of God to bear, to pray, pray from that place of being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Not to beg to a far-off God, but to simply hand over the thing that God has already given to them. So bless them as they pray. I pray that you will bless the men and women and young people here today who need prayer, who desire prayer, who would like to have the courage to come and receive prayer. I pray for the struggles that they face, and I pray the power of the Holy Spirit to cause their their decision-centered to move them from being alone to being in company where others agree for your blessing in their lives. So we turn this time over to you and invite you to come and be amazing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, please let's have some uh, prayer ministry people jump up and uh, take your places along the sides over there and be ready to pray. If you're a person here today who'd like to receive prayer for anything anything at all, you can come up to these people. They are happy, happy to believe there is nothing too small and there's nothing too big. So you just come on up and uh, come into the enjoyment of being prayed for by people who also want God's best for you. Let's stand together, church, please.